I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Acts, Acts chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 34 through 48, hearing and considering what the word the Lord has both to us and for us this morning. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The Holy Spirit is free. He's free to come and go whenever and however he pleases. He's free to convict, he's free to regenerate, he's free to baptize, he's free to fill, he's free to counsel, he's free to comfort when he wants, as he wants, according to his wisdom, not our wisdom. He's not bound to make any of our programs work. He's not constrained to do anything we want him to do when we want him to do it. He is God. And he does what he wants, when he wants. For example, in Hebrews 2.4, God bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 1 Corinthians 12.11, all these gifts are inspired by one and the same Spirit who apportions them to each one individually as he wills. Not as we will. As he wills. Jesus put it in a picture like this. John 3, 8. That's the way Jesus so often does things. The wind. So the spirit and the wind. Here's the analogy. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it. But you do not know whence it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born by the spirit. It's on you and you don't know where it came from. Or it's off you. And you don't know where it went. The Spirit is free. 
The Spirit is God. The Spirit is sovereign. The Spirit gifts and empowers and begets according to His will, His timing, His way. And you can't box Him in. You can't program Him in. You can't wrestle Him in with His arm. He comes and He goes when He chooses and He makes known repeatedly that He's God. That's the way it happened in Acts 10. Right in the middle of the sermon, or maybe near the end of it, the Spirit cuts him off and moves in. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And that was the end of the sermon. The question I have now as I read that and as I think about the freedom of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of Christ that we have here, my question is, is there a way to preach? Is there a way to teach? Is there a way to read the Bible? Is there a way to be preoccupied in your mind so that not that you can make the Spirit come with power, clothe you, but that you might so preach, so teach, so think, so read, so be preoccupied, that it's much more likely, given the way the Spirit is, that He would be inclined to come. That's my question. Now, to answer that question, we need a clue as to what the Spirit loves to do. What kinds of things is He inclined to move in on and push? And the answer is real clear in Jesus' teaching. The central thing that Jesus or that the Spirit is up to when he comes is to magnify Jesus, to glorify Jesus. John 16, 14. Jesus says, he, the Spirit, will glorify me. That's the central statement about the meaning of the coming of the ministry of, Je of, of the Spirit. J.I. Packer wrote a good book, very good book, I think. I commend it to you all. Keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the thesis of the book, which I believe is exactly right. Quote, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is, at this or any time in the Christian era, to, mend, to uh, me mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. To mediate. Or another way to put it would be, the Spirit's main ministry is to make Jesus real. To take a sermon about Jesus and transform it from a, an exchange of ideas into a communion with the living Christ. A, a sight of the glory of Christ and an experience of His living presence. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. To take a Portrait. I think what Peter is doing here, so my answer to my question is yes, there is a kind of preaching, a kind of teaching, a kind of Bible reading, a kind of thinking, a kind of preoccupation in life that makes it more likely for the Spirit to move. What Peter is doing here, it seems to me, is painting a verbal portrait of Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit sees Peter and no doubt helps Peter paint the portrait of Jesus, when he gets to a certain point, the Spirit moves in 
on that portrait and says, I like it. I like it. And watch what I'm going to do to the listeners and the watchers of this message in this portrait. And what they do is magnify God. Something is released inside. Some vision of the living, real Christ is created so that it's no longer a mere exchange of ideas about a historical person. It's a living experience of a real person, and they overflow with magnifying God through Jesus Christ that they've just heard portrayed. So, in a word, the Spirit loves to move in where Jesus is being magnified and being Exalted. So what I'd like to do this morning is just um, just uh, do it again. That is, um, walk with you through Peter's message. I see eight facets to the diamond of Jesus in this sermon. I'd like to sort of be Peter again. My good, wonderful wife left me a little note downstairs in the prayer room. There's a story behind this that you don't, I can't take you the time to tell you, but I tell you enough to make this meaningful to you. Um, my father wanted to name me Peter, but my mother said, Peter Piper, come on. <laughs> so she, she vetoed it. And so he, he did the next best thing he could. He named me John Stephen. And, and Noel, after I preached last hour, she said, too bad, your dad couldn't have named you Peter after all. So that's my goal, is to just stand in the place of Peter here and preach his sermon again to you. So let's begin. Eight points. <laughs> all you seminary students. So long, three-point model. But they're short. Because this was a short sermon. Number one, Peter lifts up Jesus as the one through whom God makes peace with a rebellious world. Verse 36, you know the word which God sent to Israel preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. Peace by Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's Peacemaker. The, the sermon begins and ends on the same note. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 36, he is coming with peace to a rebellious people. And in verse 43, as the sermon is cut off, the last thing the Spirit lets Peter say is, there's forgiveness with Jesus. And when, the, when God is moving in with a sword of judgment on us sinners... And in mercy, he sends his emissary, a peacemaker, ahead of him, namely Jesus. The way people at enmity with that God get ready to meet him is by experiencing forgiveness. And so verse 43 and 36 are the same. The sermon begins and ends with the message of, there's a peacemaker, folks. Jesus is a peacemaker. Nobody has to meet God unreconciled. Nobody has to meet the judge unpardoned. There is in advance of the judge a peacemaker sent out to us with amnesty in his hand saying, there are terms of peace. I am a forgiver of sins. You don't have to meet this judge coming with the sword in his hand to this world as an, a judge who will condemn you guilty. 
The sermon begins and ends, and that's no accident. We ought to, we ought to sandwich all of our theological statements about the glory of Jesus Christ with that tremendously relevant, personal, applying, beautiful reality that it's for you freely. It's for sinners. There's peace to be had with God through a forgiving Christ. Number one. Number two. Peter lifts up Jesus as the Lord of all. Verse 36 again. You know the word which he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. In other words, when God undertook to send in advance of his judgment a peacemaker, he did not send a glorified James Baker. He didn't send an errand boy. He didn't send a five-star general like Gabriel or Michael. He sent the Lord of all to die, to lay out the amnesty, to walk up to lowly, sinful, rebel creatures against the king of kings and to say, I am here to make peace for the king and know that they'd kill him when he said it. That's the way God did it. That's the way it had to be done. He is the Lord of all. He is no mere local prophet or tribal deity or Jewish teacher. He is Lord of the universe. So Peter lifts it up. He, he sticks it in right at the beginning. Listen, you Samaritan Gentiles in Cornelius' house. This Jesus that I'm about to present to you is Lord over all lords and over all the universe. Number three, Peter lifts up Jesus as a man anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, it's tremendously important to hear the little phrase Jesus of Nazareth with its connotations of um, Winona. Jesus of Winona, Jesus of Cambridge, Jesus of Rochester. The point is, the Lord of all was sent to be the son of a carpenter who lived in a town 25 miles northwest of Caesarea, where you now sit in Nazareth and grow up just like all the other boys in Nazareth. He was not Merely Lord of all, he was man. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's boy. Some of you might have gotten some furniture from his place. He had friends, there were kinsmen, there were toys. And therefore, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and power like you might be in Minneapolis, Caesarea. This is the only time in the sermon where the hearers get any word that there is such a thing as a Holy Spirit. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Here's the place where Peter moves it into his sermon. And then he's back on Jesus again. 
And I can't help but wonder whether one of the effects of doing it this way was to sow the seed in the minds of these people that Jesus of Nazareth, man, was anointed with the spirit and power, and therefore as man and anointed, he might be a model for other human beings, and maybe this would happen to you, too. Which it did, just a few minutes. Number four, Peter lifts up Jesus as a man who was stronger than sin and stronger than the devil. Second half of verse 38. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This anointing that was on Jesus, this power, was not lobbed from heaven over the galaxies and landed on him there in, in uh, Israel. God was with him. God was with him. The anointing was brought to Jesus. Jesus lived in perfect intimacy with his Father. He walked with God as a man. And when he performed his miracles and when he taught, he taught under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with his Father. He moved through the world. And the two results of that kind of intimacy... And that kind of anointing and that kind of power was that he did good, not bad. He was a good man. In fact, the Bible says he was totally good. His fellowship with the Father so satisfied the cravings of his human heart that he never once broke out of that fellowship to satisfy any of those cravings on sin, like we always do from time to time. Never once. The temptations were there. Come on, come on. There's satisfaction to be had in sin. There's pleasure. And he always fought that with fellowship with his father. And his father satisfied him so totally, he never broke out into sin in order to satisfy the longings of his heart. He always got his longings satisfied from his father, and therefore he was a sinless man. And the second effect of that power and that fellowship and that anointing was that he had power over Satan and delivered people who were harassed and oppressed by the devil. He is stronger than the devil. And I just find it amazing that here's a sermon, first sermon these Samaritans ever heard. So it's good to ask the questions, what did Peter put up front for people to think about when they first are being introduced to Jesus? And he puts up front, among all these other things, he is stronger than the devil. In other words, there's a devil. There's a Satan. There's a personal power in this world that is horrendously evil and destructive. It makes people mentally sick and physically sick and emotionally sick and morally evil. It's always ravaging humanity. And Jesus moves in with the anointing of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to push that power back and out, and he delivers people. It's the meaning of the coming of the kingdom, he said. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom has come upon you. 
And so he is held up as a man who did good and was stronger than sin and a man who healed and was stronger than the devil. Fifth, Peter lifts up Jesus as a man who was killed in spite of all his goodness. Verse 39, and we are witnesses to all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. In spite of the fact that he was God's peacemaker, in spite of the fact that he was Lord of all and anointed by the Spirit and anointed with power and stronger than sin and stronger than the devil and God was with him, there's only one possible meaning. If you're that strong and that anointed and have God Almighty that close to you, there's only one explanation for your death. God willed it. And sin caused it. And isn't it remarkable? That this mystery of a God-willed, innocent man, sin-causing death, the mystery of what happened there is passed right over by Peter in his preaching. And he went right to the resurrection. A little, little different than, than the way we share the gospel. It says to me at least, beware of thinking there's only one way. To share Jesus. Beware of thinking there's always this thing you've got to stick in. Beware of that. Be sensitive to what God once said about Jesus. Because there's a hundred things to say about Jesus that in any given context might go right to the heart. That somebody needs to hear. He moves right to point number six. He lifts up Jesus as alive from the dead because God raised him in three days. Verses 40 and 41. But God raised him on the third day, made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Jesus is alive. That's real central to the presentation of this Jesus that Peter's preaching. He's alive. He's alive because God did not abandon his peacemaker to Sheol. He raised him up. He vindicated him. He declared he is Lord of all. See, he will never die again. And just as important is to say he rose bodily. You see that implied here? Why else would... Peter stress in verse 41 that they ate and drank with him. He's not a ghost. He's not a mere spirit. He ate fish. He has a glorified digestive tract with flesh and bones. When Jesus broke out of death, and went back to his father, he did not abandon creation to the dogs and enter into some ethereal, spirit-smoky realm out there. He took creation, bread, fish, skin, bones, wine, up into heaven, up into reality of God, and he set the stage for a new heaven and a new earth. And we are destined as his children to join him there someday and play Wally ball in the game. Seven, Peter lifts up Jesus as the final 
judge of every person in the universe, whether they are dead or alive. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Oh, that the Spirit would come right now and open your eyes to this. Because so many of you take this reality dreadfully lightly. Don't you realize now, and I wash my hands of the blood of every one of you right now. Every person in this room individually will stand before Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. Whether you live or whether you die, you will stand individually before the judge. And you will give an account of your life. And you will not, after this message, be able to say, well, nobody ever told me that I'd be judged for my life. Nobody ever told me that there was a judge. Nobody ever told me that there was a peacemaker. Nobody ever told me that there was a way to have my sins forgiven. Nobody ever told me that sin would bring me into judgment and everlasting torment. Because I'm telling you right now, and it's on a video in heaven. And you will be shown the video at that last day if you bring up any objection to the statement, I was never given an earnest caring, loving, sensible statement that it's true. It is true, and I'm telling you it's true. And oh, how I would love to spend time just unpacking reasons for why you can trust a man like Peter, a recorder like Luke, and all the apostles who were not dupes, who were not insane, who didn't risk their lives for a travesty. You are being told that very soon every one of you will be judged. And at that judgment by Jesus Christ, there will be no more pinstripe power suits. No more fashionable hairdos. No more cool pants or stylish shirts. No more visa cards. No more bank accounts. No more makeup. No more medals. No more pretenses of power or virtue or worldly significance to elevate you and give you a sense of safety stripped down to a muslin sack and a baggy shirt on your get-up-in-the-morning-unmade-up self. You will stand before God all messy with sin. That's it. And there will be two possibilities at that moment. One... Condemnation, guilty, everlasting torment for sin against a holy and infinite God. And the other, acquitted, pardoned, enter into the kingdom of your Father prepared before the world for your joy forever. And the difference between whether you go to hell or whether you go to heaven when you meet the judge is the last thing that Peter lifts up. Number eight. Verse 43. To him 
All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now let's just just make this real clear as we end. The judge is on the way. A sword in his hand to do judgment upon his enemies. In tremendous mercy toward a rebellious world, he sends his Lord of all, peacemaking emissary, to establish the terms of amnesty with you this morning. That's what's happening right now in this sermon. God, through me, is sending amnesty and terms of reconciliation with him so that when you meet the judge, he will open the books, he will find your name written in the book of life, he will pull out a slip of pardon, hand it to you with a smile on his face, sinner though you be, and send you to glory forever and ever. And the condition you must meet now so that the pardon will be delivered then is verse 43. Mark it in your Bible. He who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through the name of Jesus. So let me close by making sure you understand what believing in Jesus is. Believing in Jesus is trusting your life to him as God's peacemaker. Believing in Jesus is trusting your life to him as the Lord of all, including the Lord of your money and the Lord of your sex life and the Lord of your housing and the Lord of your relationships and the Lord of your recreation and the Lord of your entertainment. He is Lord of all. If you don't take him as Lord, you don't take the biblical Christ. He is believed in as Lord or not at all. And it means believing in him and trusting your life to him as one stronger than sin and stronger than Satan. It means entrusting your life to him as one who died and rose again for you. It means entrusting your life to him as the judge of the living and the dead and giving yourself up to him. It means entrusting your life to him as the forgiver of your sins. This is a very profound transaction we're talking about here. It changes your life. This is the Christ, these eight facets, this is the Christ that Peter lifted up and the Holy Spirit came and said, yes, I love that. So I'd like to bow and pray with you that he would come and minister that same way to you. I'm going to invite the prayer teams to just join me while we're praying here and take your position. Father, I have simply tried to paint a word picture of Christ that Peter did. And I'm so deeply conscious of the helplessness of my own mind and the powerlessness of mere words without the Holy Spirit's work. And so I thank you that he's been here, and I ask that he would come with increased 
power now as we dismiss. That you would draw near, Holy Spirit, and open the eyes of the blind, quicken the hearts of the dead, that you would reveal Jesus Christ and transform a word picture into a living presence. And don't let anybody's life be just the same anymore. Convict of sin. Encourage the downcast. Deliver those oppressed by the devil. Heal the sick. And gather your sheep into your kingdom. Now may the God of hope grant you to be filled with joy and peace as you believe in Jesus, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Our teams are here to pray with you. If you have any burden at all that you're willing to share and have lifted, through their prayer. And all the people said, Amen.